Hello and thank you for listening to our iStart PIA Relay podcast series brought to you by NIHR Dementia Researcher. iStart is a professional society and part of the Alzheimer's Association, representing scientists, physicians and other dementia professionals active in researching and understanding the causes and treatments of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In this five-part series, we've asked members of iStart professional interest areas to take turns at interviewing their colleagues and being interviewed themselves. Confused? Don't worry, it'll all become clear as the week progresses. We'll be releasing one of these podcasts every day in the build-up to the Alzheimer's Association International Virtual Conference to showcase the work of iStart PIAs. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us to our final episode. I'm Sietzke Sikkes, uh, uh, and I'm an assistant professor at the Alzheimer's Center of the Amsterdam University Medical Centers, and I chair the non-pharmacological interventions PIA, and I'm also part of the subjective cognitive decline PIA. Today, I am very delighted to be speaking to Professor David Scott. Welcome, David. Um, and can I start you? Uh, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us in which PI you are involved? Uh, hi, Sitzka, and thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me and to talk about uh, uh, my PI. Um, my name is David Scott. I'm a professor of anesthesiology at the University of Melbourne and uh, the head of the Department of Anesthesia at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. So as you, you can guess, I'm a clinical anaesthetist and an academic uh, researcher into perioperative cognition. And that's where our peer comes in, uh, as I'm the chair of the uh, perioperative cognition and delirium peer. Okay, thank you. And as an anaesthetist, I can imagine that your focus in the past couple of months was on providing critical care and not so much on doing research. So um, I hope you've survived and are able to do some research as well. I wanted to ask you how you, uh, if you could start by telling a little bit about your research. Um, yeah, sure. So it's good. Look, it's, it's a bit of a story really. And I guess it it's, reflects what, what led to the formation of, of our peer. Um, you know, for a long time, and perhaps, well, easily for over 100 years, people have recognised that sometimes people don't wake up right after they've had anaesthesia and surgery, particularly older people. You'll, all, you, you'll often hear the story, well, mum was never the same after she had her, her surgery, whether she had her hip done or whatever she had done. And, you know, this went sort of uninvestigated for decades. And then with the advent of cardiac surgery, it became clearer that there were higher risk patients uh, having more cognitive events, including delirium after surgery. Uh, but there was still studied in the context of anesthesia, uh, anesthesia research, rather than in the broader context of community psychology, geriatrics, or psychiatry. Um, and a lot of work went into looking at um, what was called post-operative cognitive dysfunction. And from that, um, we decided uh, in, in some of our work that uh, when we were doing studies into 
patients, older patients, and assessing their, in collaboration with psychologists, uh, assessing their, their cognitive function postoperatively, it was apparent that many patients going into these procedures already had some degree of cognitive impairment. They had some baseline cognitive impairment. We called this preoperative cognitive impairment or some other sort of term related to the surgery. Um, but in fact, it's just what they had in the community. And one of the highest risk group, of course, of patients who've got Alzheimer's disease or who've got mild cognitive impairment uh, syndromes prior to that. And we um, basically needed collaboration with other investigators in other fields. We were working in silos. And the beauty of the peer, as it eventually formed, uh, was that it brought together geriatricians, basic scientists, uh, anesthesiologists, academics, uh, psychiatrists, um, a whole lot of people from a whole lot of countries. That, and, and that was because, I guess, hosted by the Alzheimer's Association, that's what it does. That's what uh, Alzheimer's meetings are like. It's a whole melange of different uh, specialties and specialist groups. And that's the opportunity to bring all the way from basic science through to clinical practice. So we started, to, to cut a long story short, we started from a question of clinical practice. Hey, mm -hmm. my elderly mother's not been the same after her anesthesia and surgery. Do well, what's causing this? And identifying that there's an at-risk population, that you need better tools for investigating it. Um, and you also need to, you need to be able to look into the mechanisms underlying it and try and identify what might be modifiable risk factors. And that's where we got into delirium because delirium clearly is something well known to you and to mm -hmm. almost all of the listeners. And uh, delirium is, is a very clearly definable clinical entity. It's defined in the DSM-4-5 five, um, and uh, it can be measured by a number of uh, screening tests as well as, as definitive testing. Um, so that, you know, that, again, this idea of delirium after anesthesia and surgery fell into place as part of this trajectory, if you like, of cognitive decline or dysfunction after anesthesia and surgery. That's a very, that's a very brief answer for you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, David. That's very fascinating. And um, I was wondering, with regards to the mechanisms, um, do you, uh, how it works with the, the pre-operative cognitive dysfunction and post-operative dysfunction, whether they are separate, whether the anesthesia is a um, yeah what it's what the effect is is it an accelerator or does it independently cause the uh, the cognitive impairments I was wondering what your Look, it's probably more bit, complicated than one or the other but I was wondering it is a bit of both and that's but that's a really important question and one which we're wrestling with um, it's also I guess one of the things which brought our basic scientists and Alzheimer's research into this fold, because a, a lot of the basic science, there is a, a lot of basic science looking at exposure of uh, Alzheimer prone animals, for instance, to, um, as in the, the amyloid uh, mice and rats, uh, to anesthesia uh, agents, such as uh, volatile anesthetic agents and minor surgical procedures. And it can be shown that in, in those animals, they have changes in their neuropathology which is accelerated by the exposure to the anesthetic agents. So we were, one of the hypotheses is that exposure to anesthetic agents may be an accelerant for neurodegeneration in some way. Um, we're and it's like a detective story. So we're, we're moving more into a balance now where 
there's a predisposition because you've already got some cognitive impairment which increases vulnerability. That's that's pretty clear. Um, there may be something related to the anesthesia and surgery, whether it's um, neurotoxicity from anesthesia agents, or more likely, much, much more likely, the combination of the stress and the inflammatory response from the surgical and anesthetic exposure, but particularly maybe the surgery, which then creates an exaggerated um, deterioration, if you like, or neurodegeneration. And we've done some really interesting biomarker work um, in collaboration with the biofluid members of the biofluid biomarkers group, um, which has demonstrated that certain biomarkers of neurodegeneration um, actually increase after anesthesia and surgery for a period of time. Mm. And so there is potential for understanding the mechanisms, but I would be the first to say we're nowhere near being able to say what actually is the biochemical or neurochemical mechanism underlying something like delirium. So you asked, um, are we accelerating it or um, are we just making it sort of follow its own trajectory? And there's, there's two things happening, aren't there? And you would know this from your own research into, into clinical archetypes and, and, and the clinical pathways of, of patients with Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, that sometimes it's something like having an event happen that brings it to awareness that that person is only just barely coping in their own environment. So there's, there's just the, you know, in that case, the, the event, the fall, the fracture, the anesthesia and surgery, yes, it's stressful, but actually what it's revealed is their underlying lack of reserve. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is this other question, well, maybe if we modify that stress, we can decrease, we can improve the trajectory for some of these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you're saying is indeed the, the revealing aspect of uh, of the the surgical procedure, that's indeed something that you often hear in clinical practice. And is it also that um, uh, that you apply this knowledge in your clinical practice? Back again. Well, yes. Yeah, so with with our, our group, um, the PIA has published a couple of um, white papers looking at both basic science and also clinical science and recommendations. And we've worked with the Perioperative Brain Health Institute for the American Society of Anesthesiologists um, in producing some recommendations for care for uh, patients, older patients having uh, anesthesia and surgery, as have as European groups as well. And basically, I think we do know um, there are things we, all the things you can do to decrease delirium are good things to do. And, and, and you know, there's lifestyle modifications, there's environmental modifications, there's removing predisposing factors, there's, there's modifying precipitating factors. And, from an anesthesiology point of view, which is, I guess, where I come from at my core, there are things like um, avoiding certain drugs such as benzodiazepines, um, avoiding pain, avoiding exposure to anticholinergic drugs or analgesics, which increase sedation, um, creating a familiar environment, um, trying to you know, avoid metabolic disturbance, mm -hmm. and maybe even, maybe even um, modifying the depth of anesthesia so that you're minimizing um, the dose of anesthetic that you give to these older patients. Now, there's conflicting evidence at the moment of, of regarding some of the tools we use for measuring that. Um, and there's, you know, there's plenty of scope for new investigators to get into this field because there's so many unanswered questions. But we use a form of EEG monitoring, processed EEG monitoring yeah. under anesthesia. One of, one of the forms is called BIS, but there's other types as well, entropy. And they give us an index of how much the anesthetic agent is affecting the brain. 
It's, a, yeah. it affects the, it's a, to do with the frontoparietal connect, connectivity. And um, so we can, to some extent, dose adjust anaesthetic amount to older patients uh, by, by noting the BIS, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not designed for that. Um, and it's, it's a rough tool. And at the moment, the, the, the jury is still out, I would say, on it's, the recommendations are that you minimise anaesthetic dosing, and that makes a lot of sense. But whether that tool in itself is the key, we're still, we're still investigating. But there are so many other things we can do. There's regional anaesthesia versus general anaesthesia, but almost always when someone has a regional anaesthetic, I'll come back to the fractured neck of femur again because that's a typical situation. Um, you know, they have, might have a spinal anaesthetic, but they might get some sedation as well. Yeah. So that clouds the whole clinical pathway. And, yeah. uh, you know, so that's where orthogeriatrics really has come into its fore. I think it's one of the best demonstrated effective perioperative uh, ways of minimising uh, adverse cognitive outcomes in elderly patients. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it sounds like a very broad research field in itself. And it's uh, really fascinating, but I very difficult to oversee the consequences of indeed minimizing uh, the medication people receive. I think that's, that's very, um, yeah. I'm also thinking about pain perception and how people can communicate pain, for example, uh, especially in the, in the Alzheimer's disease stage. In the and, dementia and stage. Yeah. You're exactly, you're, yeah. You, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. In fact, so that's where the human, human side of it comes in. You need to have people who know that person who are able to communicate effectively with them when they're at that extreme. extreme. So the Alzheimer's, you know, the advanced Alzheimer's disease is obviously a, a very challenging uh, situation for, for patients and their families and carers uh, and for clinicians trying to care for them. Um, but I guess what we really want to do is, is to alter that trajectory, alter the path, stop so, try and stop people getting so much Alzheimer's disease. And that's what Alzheimer's Association is all about. And that's what we're all working towards. Um, I know you've done some work, I think, into um, if almost, almost cognitive preconditioning or trying to enrich the, the, mm -hmm. the person's mind or their brain before um, to see if that improves their trajectory. Is that, is that a correct thing to say? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we looked a little bit into the um, non-pharmacological intervention of um, sort of lifestyle changes and uh, specifically for those people who experience uh, complaints, memory complaints, uh, because often these people would like to do something about their cognitive functioning uh, and we give them some general lifestyle advice, but um, with this project, we really wanted to develop um, targeted lifestyle advice. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's quite key in, um, in giving lifestyle advice and hoping that people will improve is that it is targeted. Um, that, that fits in with exactly some, some of the research that our, our founding chair of, of our um, here was uh, Professor Liz Everett, and she currently she's at Wild Cornell, but she actually works in my department in Melbourne as well. Yeah. And uh, she's uh, got a research program which is just starting up now. It's been stopped because of the COVID situation that you alluded to right at the start. Um, but basically, it's to do with 
uh, all those sort of psychological pre uh, knowledge and, and mind improvement uh, prior to anesthesia and surgery to see if that conditions you, protects you against the stress. So we've talked about, we've heard of physical preconditioning before surgery. Mm. This is cognitive preconditioning, if you like. And pre, she uses the term, um, you know, cognitive prehabilitation. Um, yeah. And, and so we're hoping that, that that's exactly what I think you're talking about. And that that's maybe you two should get together and talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That sounds like a perfect match, actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah because talk about the, the the challenge of COVID, and one of the problems we have as a as as researchers in clinical practice is you've got to sit down with patients and do assessments on. Them. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, that's a touchy area. People don't want researchers coming into their homes, or nope. you know, sitting down with them for fifteen minutes or half an hour, or an hour and a half, doing a psychological screening thing. It's it's so we've we've actually had to stop some of that assessment. Yeah. And we're looking at ways it might be able to be done remotely. Remote assessment is something which is emerging, I think. Yeah, yeah, actually it's a, uh, I'm always, have always been in favor of remote assessments as an uh, add-on, so to say, but it was very difficult to convince people about the need. But now, of course, it's completely clear we need remote assessments, even if it is just to follow people over time to have some idea about how they're functioning whilst not being able to visit them. Mm. So it is, uh, and it is, of course, it provides so many opportunities to do remote assessments. Uh, you can, people can do that on their own computer or even on their own mobile phone. And you can capture uh, a lot of data about how they're functioning. So it is definitely an area that um, that I think a lot of people now see the the value of and the urgency to uh, to work on. Yeah. yeah, we've been motivated to do a lot of things a lot more quickly in different ways since uh, we've had the limitations put on us, haven't we? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, it was very and unfortunate. The meeting was cancelled, for instance. Uh, I'm sure everyone was hoping. Uh, to come to Amsterdam this year. For... Yes, yeah, that's very unfortunate. And I was actually looking forward to being a, a Van Gogh uh, museum tour guide, but unfortunately, uh, that's that's also not happening. So we're oh. very sad that uh, uh, that you all won't be coming to Amsterdam this year, but hopefully uh, a next time. Hopefully soon. Yeah. And um, I was also wondering uh, whether uh, in the PI you also have early career researchers involved and or how they can get involved in your PI. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think um, one of the beauties of, of the peers is that they're fertile ground for early career researchers to make contacts, to make connections, to get involved. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways. Of course, joining the peer is a good thing uh, through ISTAR, um, putting in abstracts and tagging them for the peer. So what we what we did last year, we had a couple of um, uh, of, of people who we didn't know who had tagged our peer as, as part of uh, their um, their submission to AIC, and we we invited them to present their work at our peer day. Um, as you know, brief, brief present, abstract presentations, which was a great way of getting to know younger researchers and for them to get to network with a whole range of people from, as I said, from basic scientists all the way through to clinicians of varying different specialties and, 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 and expertise. 
Um, and uh, so, so certainly putting an abstract tag in from here is a great way. Um, and you know, everyone's on is equal. There's no sort of academic hierarchy, I think, within the peers. It's just people who work together and, and, and can talk in a room, can go out to dinner, uh, can have, um, we do have peer-wide uh, advertise, there are peer-wide advertised um, webinars, which are held um, yeah. every year or so. Uh, we've not been that good this year. We had one last year, but we haven't had one this year yet. But of course, we'll be having the, uh, both the live webinar at the following the AAIC meeting, as well as um, these pre-records and pre-recorded sessions as well. Uh, I think your peer is probably doing the same. One yeah, of your yeah. peers, that's both yeah. of them. <laughs> both of them, yeah. <laughs> Oh, but good. So there will be a pre-recorded session that people can... Yeah, yeah. So our peer, the yeah. Peer Physician and Delirium Peer, will, is, is putting together what I think is a great pre-recorded program uh, and we'll also have a live program um, for later on where people can interact, with people who are registered with iStart. So yeah. um, as I understand it, the, the um, pre-record is going to be widely available for anyone, yeah. but uh, you need to be registered for the, for the uh, live session. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so there's that. And the other thing is we do offer travel grants for uh, younger investigators, uh, young investigator awards. Um, so, and, and we advertise for those. Um, there wasn't much, we couldn't really offer a travel grant this year because no one's traveling anywhere, which is, <laughs> so maybe it'll double in value for next year. I don't know. Um, but, but we're wide open to people just uh, joining and, and paying and watching what we do, looking up, uh, researchers in their own area um, and, and coming along to obviously to the iStart peer day. Yeah and that's an excellent initiative so people can with the fellowship people can join who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend the conference. I think that's uh, that's really great. Okay um, well I think it's our time is up so thank you and uh, before we go I have one final question and I actually thought this was the most tricky question, but what advice would you give to any aspiring scientists out there who are thinking of looking into dementia? That is a hard question. I should have been prepared for it. <laughs> um, look, at, I think looking into dementia, I think you need, it's so wide ranging, it's so important, but it affects um, people uh, at all stages of the disease from mild cognitive impairment all the way through. I think the area to look at is in the early forms of the illness to look at, if you're looking at clinical patients, patients who are just starting to get memory complaints um, have or have mild cognitive impairment. I think that's, that's a fertile area for research. Clearly we want to do what we can to, uh, to halt or, or even reverse advanced, more advanced dementia. But if you look at the analogy with with cardiovascular disease. Uh, we achieve a lot more by preventive strategies and, and you know, strategies, which, in fact, strategies which improve the uh, cardiovascular system, improve uh, the brain as well in cognition. But prevention, uh, statin stopping it before the disease starts, before you have your heart attack, before you have your brain attack or your delirium, uh, those sort of things I think um, are worth targeting. Delirium I think is worth targeting as well. I think that's a very important area. Uh, probably because not only is it a manifestation of some degree of cognitive uh, challenge, but also an episode of delirium probably does some harm. And so it's, yeah. it's likely that any strategies which can be done to prevent delirium will be uh, of benefit. 
Um, and if you're, you can be the basic scientist who discovers the underlying mechanism for delirium and, and can turn it off, then that would be fantastic. Yeah. So that's an open invitation to all early career researchers. Um, I would like to thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening over the past week. I Start PI Years are a great way to expand your network and find new collaborators, and we hope these podcasts have inspired you to become involved. You'll find profiles on today's panellists and information on iStart on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and also at isles.org forward slash iStart. We're looking forward to next week's AIC virtual conference, so if you haven't already registered, visit isles.org for more information. Finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, our website and everywhere else you find your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. Music